this evening, I want to begin a two-part series on what is of utmost importance uh, to us as men. In fact, I can say this right at the very beginning, that there are few things, few topics like the topic of sexual purity that influence a man's success in life as much as that topic does. If you look at failures, if you look at those whose lives have ended in disaster, most often it is connected to very serious mistakes made in the area of sexual purity. And the reverse is true as well. If you look at those who have lived a full life, those who are successful in the eyes of God, those who have healthy relationships, a proper view on life, those results are part of the effect of a cause. And that cause was a proper understanding of sexual purity and a proper commitment to its importance in life. In fact, we see this all throughout the scriptures. So much of scripture, when we read the narrative and we read the instruction, so much of scripture deals with this topic. It is not a secondary topic. It is not a topic that is relegated to a few forgotten portions of scripture. We see the importance of this very topic expressed throughout Scripture, and let me just give you a few texts to begin with that help, a, help us understand the role that sexual purity has in our lives as men. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says this, flee immorality, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, we won't get into it there, but some, some have argued that there's no differences in sins. And yet in this text, Paul does emphasize the fact that sexual sin has a seriousness that transcends the seriousness even of other sins. It is, it is not just a small little mistake. Sexual sin has a particularly negative impact on one's life. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now when you talk to a lot of men today, one of the questions will be, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I don't know what to do with my life. And then you'll talk a little bit more and you'll find that he's engaged in all kinds of immoral behavior. And you think, you are worried about whether to take this job or this job. You're trying to find God's will in some minor area of life, and yet you're failing in the area that God has clearly revealed to you, which is your purity, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will. There's very few statements that are that explicit. This is one of them. This is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Those engaged in sexual immorality before marriage and those who engage in sexual conduct outside of marriage are are stated to be judged by 
God. This is very serious. And yet it's a serious enough issue that, that we don't give enough attention to it. And this certainly is reflected in, in statistics. Let me give you some statistics simply about the, the use of pornography. These are statistics that were taken from the United States in 2018. And in 2018, it was found out that every second, there are 28,258 users watching pornography. At any given second, almost 30,000 people are watching pornography. In every second, $3,075.64. In every second, that amount of money is spent on some form of pornographic material. It was stated in 2018 that 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites. Now, that was 2018. Think about what has happened since the start of the pandemic and the lockdowns. It is stated that in the last eight months, since March, that there has been a 30% increase in these kinds of statistics. 30%. The lockdowns and the command to stay home, stay private, stay, stay distant have had a devastating effect on men in particular in this country and in countries around the world. Some countries have had even worse statistics than these. Big tech and social media giants are profiting off of all of this and they have a vested interest in keeping men isolated. They make their money, huge amounts of money, by keeping you in the dark, alone. And if you think that their propaganda is that they care for you by somehow keeping you isolated and distanced, if you believe that, I've got some beachfront in northern Canada that I can sell to you. They care nothing for your soul. They care nothing for what is going on in the lives of men and the devastating impact that these lockdowns have had on men and their isolation. And that's seen on so many different fronts, but it's particularly seen in the realm of morality, or should we say immorality, and the use of the internet. This has always been a big topic. It is especially in our day, but it's important to note that our times are not unique. In fact, when you look at the book of Proverbs, we see that the problem was in existence there too. One commentator has said this, there's no topic in Proverbs to which more emphasis is given than that of sexual purity. The struggle for purity is not just a struggle in our day, although certainly the forces of this present evil age have created a system in which to make this struggle so much more personal. In Solomon's day, he didn't have a porn shop 
on his phone. He had to go out and find it or retreat into the recesses of his mind. But today, when we look at what has been constructed in this society, sexual immorality is never easier than it is today. Well, what we're going to do over the next two weeks is to look at this topic in depth. It is a very vital topic, one which has immediate application to all of your lives. And like I said, it is a topic that will have an influence on your life, perhaps unlike any other topic, your sexual purity. So let's take time to go through the teachings of Proverbs carefully. And as we do that over this week and next, I want to highlight eight principles from Proverbs that will help you fight for purity. Eight principles from Proverbs that will help you fight for purity. Now, I want to begin with this realization. If you do not know the fear of the Lord, if you have not been regenerated and made alive, it is impossible for you to apply these things in sincerity and ineffectiveness. And I'll get to that at the end of tonight's, uh, tonight's topic, but I want to state it at the beginning. What we're talking about here is not just moral reforms. As Solomon himself said in Proverbs 1 verse 7, it is the, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And if you're here tonight and you don't fear the Lord in that salvific sense, What I'm going to tell you is going to have some, perhaps some temporal benefit. Undoubtedly, there's benefit to this. But you've got a much more substantial issue to deal with. You've got to get right with the Lord at that most basic level before these things can even be implemented in any effective way. So I want to make it clear that as we start on this discussion and we we look at these eight principles... I am going to be building upon the idea, I'm going to be building upon that truth that these things are possible only for the one who fears the Lord. Only the one who fears the Lord in the salvific sense that has that attitude of adoration and reverence to the God who created him, to the God who created that element of our personality. So here are the eight principles. Now before we get into them as well, I want to highlight quickly the key texts that we will be going to in order to summarize this truth. There are several key texts in Proverbs that are more fundamental or more substantive and others that make brief mention to this issue, but let me list them for you right at the beginning. Here are the texts that Proverbs gives on the topic of sexual purity chapter 2, essentially all the way from verse 1 to 22, but especially in verses 16 to 22. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 23. Chapter 6, verses 20 to 35. Chapter 7, verse 1 all the way through to the end of verse 27. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 18. We have a few statements made in chapter 23, verses 26 to 28. 
Another reference in Proverbs 29 verse 3. And then a final one in Proverbs 30 verse 20. But the significant sections are those found in chapters 5, 6, and 7. These are the ones to which we will turn most frequently. They give the most extended treatment on the topic. In fact, if we look at all of Scripture, we really find in Proverbs some of the most extended discussion of this issue. And again, that's why we're going to take the time to look at it both tonight and next week. And from these texts, we will draw eight fundamental principles to help in the fight for purity. Let me give you the first one. The first one is this. This is where it all begins. We fight for purity by keeping our ears attentive to instruction. We fight for purity by keeping our ears attentive to instruction. Now, it's important to note that sexual sin and enslavement takes root and flourishes when a man listens to and believes lies. This is really about truth and lies and, and bad sinful habits and enslavements begin when men listen to lies about sexuality. For example, this is common, you'll hear men say or you'll, you'll hear the justification made that, well, this kind of activity is just normal human behavior. This is just normal human behavior. We need to sow our oats, it's sometimes said. This is just what men do. It's a kind of justification, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. Number two, some will say this, it really isn't that bad. It really isn't that bad. And and you'll have this kind of justification that says, well, it's just like any other sin, and, and so we don't make a big deal of these other sins, so sexual sin is really not a big deal. And like I've already said, that distorts the truth. God has already warned us in his word that this kind of sin in particular has a devastating impact on our souls. You'll have those who will say this, I need some kind of sensual pleasure or this kind of entertainment to get my mind off of problems. And so you have this lie that we need it to cope, that it's that God-given outlet, so to speak, to manage life's problems, problems in a fallen world, in a world that doesn't function the way it ought to. And so there's all kinds of justification that's made for that. Or you'll have those who say, as Christians, you'll have those who will say this, I can't stop it even if I tried. I know it's wrong, but it's just in my DNA. It's just who I am, and so I just need to live with it. And that's that, that sense of resignation. And these lies and others are lies that are sown by the enemy of our soul. They prevent us from seeing what God has taught on these issues. And by believing in these lies, we are drawn only more and more into enslavement isolation, guilt, shame, and destruction. Instead, we must listen to and believe truth. We must listen to and believe truth. The one who is serious about fighting for purity has to make truth the starting point, the intake of truth. In fact, it's interesting 
It's certainly not coincidental that Solomon's instructions on sexual purity almost always begin with a solemn call to incline one's ear to instruction. If you go through those major sections, especially in chapter 5, 6, and 7, Solomon over and over and over again begs his son, listen to my words, listen to my commandments, listen to me. Solomon as a father is recognizing and is stating that if his son is to remain pure, it must begin with the proper intake of truth. For example, in Proverbs chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 1 and 5, verses 10, 11 to 16. I'll I'll choose some some sections out of this, this lengthy discourse here. Solomon says this, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. And then he says in verse 16, he gives an outcome of this. To deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words. Or you could even say from the adulteress who appears on the screen. It begins with taking in wisdom, discretion, understanding, knowledge, commandments, words. And these words, Solomon says, will deliver you. These words will deliver. That that verb to deliver in verse 16 refers to a snatching away or a freeing from the firm grip of some distress. Solomon is saying that teaching, truth, instruction, that this this propositional truth will be the thing to snatch you away from that temptation in the moment that it arises. It must begin here. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, communicates the same idea. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion And your lips may reserve knowledge. And then immediately he says this, for the lips of an adulteress. And he goes into a description of hers, her words. If you were to avoid the snare of the adulteress, if you were to avoid her allurement, if you were to avoid being ensnared by her words, you need to give the words of truth the priority. A few verses later in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 5, he says the same thing. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Proverbs 6, 20 to 24, my son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue 
of the adulteress. Solomon recognized the need for his son to be continually exposed to truth, to instruction, continually reminded by and guarded by this teaching concerning sexual purity and the resistance against temptation. His son was to have this teaching, notice, bound to his heart, tied around his neck so that they would guard him as he would walk through the paths of life. And this commandment, this teaching is called the lamp. It's called the light. In Proverbs 7 verse 1 to 5, the same thing. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. That they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, Now therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Now, men will often ask the question, Why can't I obtain victory over this lust? Why can't I resist it? Well, Solomon gives an answer. He says, wisdom can deliver you. If you truly are walking in the fear of the Lord, wisdom can and will deliver you from this sin. But wisdom never comes passively. The daily fight against temptation in in any form, but especially the daily fight against sexual temptation in particular, will not be advanced in ignorance or in isolation from the intake of God's word. And there is a direct correlation here. And perhaps you observe it even in your own life. Now this isn't the only thing to observe, but it is the primary one. That often when men are struggling in the resistance against temptation, when men are falling into enslavement, you ask them, well, how are, how are you with studying God's word? I don't just mean in some kind of ritualistic manner, just putting it on as you drive and think about other things or just kind of showing up to, to some kind of Bible study but daydreaming the whole time. But we're talking about dedicated, sincere study. How is that going in your life? How are you taking in God's word, this lamp and light? That will guide you and keep you from the snares of the adulteress. Often, in most cases, when you ask the question, the answer is, I'm not doing so well. I stopped a while ago. I'm not reading like I used to. Well, to you who are in that category, this is the instruction. Wisdom does not come passively. Wisdom can deliver you from enslavement. It can, it can deliver you from the snare, but you have to actively pursue this wisdom. This is what the psalmist recognized in Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. If you do not know that word, you won't be able to keep your way pure. It is the word of God that sheds light on who you are, what you've been created to be. It sheds light on the nature of sin and how it is to be resisted. And if you neglect that, you will be defenseless against the ways of this temptation. 
Another commentator in a book called Councils of the Wise King wrote this, and he's dealing here with a more broader issue related to, to, to uh, sin and giving into temptation, but it certainly applies to our study here. He said this, If I have given my heart to God and begun to run well, let me beware of the first symptoms of backsliding. Great heights or depths are reached in the spiritual life as in engineering by almost imperceptible inclines. Secret indulgence of forbidden desires, repeated neglects of duty, these prepare the way for a rapid declension or a great fall. There is no such thing as a sudden collapse of a sound heart. When a collapse takes place and the world is wondering, be sure that That heart has been secretly eaten into by hidden sins long before its true state became known. Like well-looking fruit preyed upon on the inside of the next wall. And this is true of, of sexual sin as well. When some man that you might know, the professing Christian, falls a great fall, you can be assured that what preceded it was repeated neglects of duty, repeated neglects of discipline, of being in the Word, of getting up early enough to pray, of spending the time in communion with the Lord. You can trace it to that. Victory in the battle against temptation is not won if vigilance is exercised only at the moment of that temptation. It must be exercised early before that temptation even appears on the horizon. Victory is won by a myriad of choices made before that temptation even comes knocking. And that myriad of temptations is what we can call holiness, the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of knowing God through reading His revealed Word, through praying and communing with Him, through being in, in amongst God's people and benefiting from the fellowship and ministry that comes from His saints. That lifestyle is the harvest of a, of a, of a, of a whole bunch of small decisions that begin with that first moment even when the alarm clock goes off in the day. So if you're serious about this, if you're serious about being strong and resisting this temptation and making changes in your life, it begins in those small choices, those early choices to immerse yourself in God's word and in fellowship with him, determined to start, continue, and end your day with a new Commitment to a consistent diet of doctrinal nourishment. Get back to reading the Bible. Get back to praying. Get back to what you did in Awana when you were nine years old. Start memorizing the scriptures. These are all things anybody can do. And so if you're serious about this, this is where it will begin. But if this is too elementary for you and not interesting, anything else that I talk about tonight or next week will not help you. It begins 
with your determination to get back to making your ear inclined to truth. Intellectual passivity in response to sexual sin is deadly. Set your mind actively to learn the Word of God. Number two, number two, we fight for purity by acknowledging the power of temptation. We fight for purity by acknowledging the power of temptation. John Owen, in his classic work on sin and temptation, said this. He said, the Christian must know, quote, This is our enemy. This is his way in progress. These are his advantages. Thus he has already prevailed, and thus he will do if not prevented. In other words, we as men need to take this military-style approach. And you know that any good military captain will study his opponent. He doesn't just wait for the opponent to come. He will study his every move. He will study how that enemy makes its approach. He will study what kind of weapons that enemy has. He will study the successes of that enemy in past history. And he will attempt to predict and forecast how that enemy might make success against him. Any wise military captain does that. And John Owen said, that's what we need to do as well. It's not that we become experts in sin and temptation, but it does mean we must know what these things are all about. And sadly, a lot of men are ignorant of the wiles of temptation. They're ignorant about how temptation entices They've never given it a second thought. Certainly, they do feel the regret of past sins, but they won't take the time to say, okay, how did this even happen in the first place? Let me retrace my steps. Where did the temptation arise? How did it confront me? Where did it begin? When did it become, in my mind, almost insurmountable or irresistible? We must recognize the power of temptation we must recognize how it works. And it's interesting to note that as Solomon instructs his son, he does not shrink back from warning his son about the alluring nature of sexual temptation. He doesn't just treat it as some kind of a neutral topic. He explains it as being very alluring. It is very appealing. He talks about the adulteress, for example, in chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 7, verse 5, he describes the adulteress this way. She is the one who, quote, flatters with her words. In 5, verse 3, he talks about the lips of an adulteress that drip honey and are smoother than oil. In chapter 6, verse 24, again, he talks about the smooth tongue of the adulteress. In the very next verse, in chapter 6, verse 25, he says that the seductress can capture you with her eyelids. In chapter 7, verse 10, he says the seductress meets the naive man dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. In all these descriptions, Solomon is teaching his son that this is not an easy opponent. 
This enemy is nothing to scoff at. It is serious. In fact, it's very fascinating to note that as he describes the devices of sexual temptation, he touches on all of the same issues that affect us today, the senses. Now, some sins that are appealing to us are indeed sins of the mind, perhaps the sin of self-pity or the sin of, of anxiety. But the, but the nature of sexual sin is that it appeals specifically to our senses. That's why we call it a sensual sin. It appeals to our senses. And, and some of us have never even considered that before. And so we leave our senses completely unguarded. But notice this, how Solomon describes the devices of this kind of temptation. He talks about charming speech in 216, 5-3, 6-24, 7-5, and 7-14-21. Charming speech, sound. Sexual temptation will make its advancement through our hearing, through words that we as men love to hear. Oh, you're, you're just the guy I need. You're, you're so kind and gentle. It approaches us through sight. He talks about flaunted beauty. 625, 7 verse 10, and and 30 verse 30. He talks about flaunted beauty. How beauty appeals to men's eyes. He talks about physical contact, the touch. How the touch impacts and, and has a place in temptation. 7 verse 13. He'll talk about enticing aroma, the smell in chapter 7, verses 16 to 17. And he'll even talk about the flavors, the taste in 5, verse 3, 7, verse 18, 9, verse 17. In all of these, he's warning his son to say, this is how it it advances to you. It's going to make its appeal to these particular senses. And, And when he does that, he helps his son understand, okay, this is how temptation approaches. I need to be aware of it, and then I need to put my forces on alert in those areas. John Bunyan, in his allegory called Holy War, a different one than the one most known, Pilgrim's Progress, in Holy War he writes of this allegorical situation. He talks about the town called Mansoul. Mansoul. Mansoul had five gates, in at which to come, out at which to go. And these were made likewise answerable to the walls, to wit, impregnable, and such as could never be opened nor forced, but by the will and leave of those within. The names of the gates were these, ear gate, eye gate, mouth gate, nose gate, feel gate. The five senses. And what Bunyan is talking about here is that these are the gates into our souls, these senses. Now, ideally, these gates are controlled by the mind. And if the mind is well instructed in the truth, the mind will have the strength to guard these gates. But if the mind is not vigilant and instructed, if the mind is ignorant about the wiles of temptation, these gates to man's soul, are left unguarded. Chris Lungard says this, if you want to overthrow a fortress, start by knocking out the watchman. 
If he can't warn the others, you will easily breach the wall, or you could say the gate, and carry the day. The flesh plies deceit to knock out the watchman of your soul, your mind. If you don't recognize the power of temptation, if you don't recognize how temptation works, if you haven't instructed your mind, then it is easier for the flesh to knock your mind out of its proper role, leaving you susceptible to your senses. Do not be naive. Understand how temptation affects you. It may be a little bit different than the next person beside you. Understand and reflect upon how it was that you were ensnared by this particular vice. While some temptations take aim more directly on your thinking, recognize that sexual temptation makes its advancement particular to your senses. And in men, we have been made to to be influenced by these senses, but only to the glory of God can those senses be helpful to us when they are properly instructed by truth and guarded by our minds. If you allow these senses, the man gate, or the, the, the eye gate, the ear gate, the nose gate, the mouth gate, if you allow these senses to overrule your mind, you will fail. And ultimately, you must recognize that the strength you must recognize the strength of your enemy and the weakness of your defenses. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 8 to 12. Notice how he puts this together. As he recalls the history of Israel, he says this, Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The second principle, the second truth to help you fight for purity deals with this very last statement. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Do an inventory of your life. Are you in control of your senses or do they control you? Are you vigilant in those gates to your soul? Are you keeping watch? And if you have fallen into some habitual practices and some bad, bad lifestyle choices that is leading to sinful behavior, are you aware of how that is coming into your life and you're, are you doing something to reinforce the areas where that sin is entering? Number three, we fight for purity by contemplating the hideousness of sin. We fight for purity by contemplating the hideousness of sin. Again, Chris Lungard writes this, This is the art of deception. To make someone believe that things are other than they are so that he will do something he would never otherwise do. This is the way your flesh makes you into the willing servant of sin. And this is how sexual sin tempts men. It puts on the mask of beauty. It puts on the mask of of delight and pleasure. 
when in reality behind that mask is utter hideousness. It's important to note that Solomon uses direct, vivid language to describe the temptress. He he doesn't paint her again in neutral terms, but rather describes her for who she really is. Proverbs 2, verses 16 to 17, he he talks about wisdom being imparted in order to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. He calls her a strange woman, and that Hebrew word there refers to a spiritual foreigner, not a real ethnic foreigner, a spiritual foreigner, someone who is alien to God's ways. Think of that the next time you take that second look at that harlot on the screen or in the movie. She is alien to God's ways. Secondly, he describes her as leaving the companion of her youth. And that verb to leave refers to the abandonment of a vow. It is used to describe covenant treachery, covenant unfaithfulness, the breaking of promises, Solomon says to his son, this is who she is. He also says she forgets the covenant of her God, either referring to the marriage covenant described in Genesis 2 verse 24 or all the Mosaic covenant that had been described and revealed. In Proverbs chapter 7 verse 11 to 12, he describes her as boisterous and rebellious. Boisterous refers to someone who is crude, shameless, unruly. Rebellious refers to someone who is flagrant in defiance. He describes this one as her feet do not remain at home. She rejects her God-given stewardship. And now she's in the streets. Now she's in the squares. She lurks by every corner. The idea there is is that she is devoid of any inhibitions whatsoever. This is the hideousness of sin. And you can look at other Proverbs as well. Proverbs twenty two fourteen: The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Proverbs 23, 27 to 28. For a harlot is a deep pit, an adulterous woman is a narrow well. Surely she lurks as a robber and increases the faithless among men. 30 verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. And he doesn't only describe the woman this way. He describes the man who shacks up with her in similarly vivid terminology. For example, in chapter 7 verse 22 to 23, he says this, Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Solomon doesn't mince words. He wants his son to recognize the hideous nature of sexual sin. Again, quoting from Lungard, quote, If the mind fails to identify a sin as evil, wicked, vile, and bitter, the affections will not be safe from clinging to it, nor the will from giving consent. 
This is one side of the castle wall, the first line of defense, to keep in mind that every sin is a forsaking of God, to never forget the polluting, corrupting, defiling power of sin, to be shaken to the core by how much God loathes sin. One of the important things you must do if you're serious about this fight is that you must recognize the vileness of sexual sin. Our culture, and perhaps even others close to you, will sometimes, if not all the time, make light of these things. They'll talk about common law marriage or living together. The Bible calls it fornication. They'll talk about an affair or a tryst, but the Bible calls it adultery. They'll talk about a gay lifestyle, but the Bible calls it the abomination of homosexuality. They'll talk about mature entertainment, but it must be called pornography. They'll talk about fantasy or an appreciation of beauty. And it must be called lust. We must use biblical terms to describe these things and resist the efforts of our culture to make light of these very serious sins. In fact, we, we all know the, verb, or the verse in, in 1 John 1 verse 9 that if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a truth that we cling to even in the context of this discussion. But it's important to recognize what the verb to confess really means. The Greek word hamalageo. It doesn't mean to tell God something he doesn't know, to confess in that sense. Hamalageo means to say the same thing. When we confess sin to God, it means we talk to God about our sin the same way that he sees our sin. In its hideousness, in its ugliness, as an affront to his righteousness, that is how we must confess our sin. And if you are serious about this fight, it means that when you go to prayer in confession, you don't talk about little mistakes. You don't talk about little indiscretions or failures. You talk about sin in its vivid form. And you confess it to God as he describes it, not as culture describes it. I like what Neuhauser said. He said, wouldn't it be nice if a man could put on a pair of glasses that would make immoral and immodest women look hideously ugly? Proverbs offers you such spiritual spectacles. Wisdom enables you to look beyond the strange woman's outward beauty and seductiveness and see the ugliness of her character. He's pointing to the right thing. When we fill our minds with biblical truth, then all of a sudden when we see these temptations, we are able to see through the veneer, the facade, the mask, and see the ugly character on the other side. And that's what we need. And if you're allured by some of the beauty that you see on the screen or on the telephone, you need to to get these spectacles on that will help you see just how hideous it is and how much of an abomination it is before God. We need to stop mincing words and call it like it is. Stuart Scott said, There really is no small sin. Sin is not small. In God's eyes, 
And it is a lie of Satan that a little sin doesn't matter. Any sin that is tolerated is a serious matter to God because it always leads to more sin. Lust follows a progression of entanglement. It does not become a life-dominating sin overnight, but it will happen and in a much shorter time than your flesh wants you to believe. So it's important, especially you younger men, it's important that as soon as some of these temptations begin and as soon as you find yourself... a a, a servant of these things to not treat them as little tiny mistakes. That was the problem of the Pharisees, really, in one way. The Pharisees had taken the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and and, and insisted that adultery only related to actual physical consummation. They were minimalists. They said sin really, with respect to adultery, only happens if I actually go through and touch the woman. But Jesus corrected that and reminds us of how we ought to look at sin. He said this in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The next time your friends invite you to go see an R-rated movie, bring this verse along. Or maybe even better, tell them this verse. Anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Number four, and the final one for tonight. We fight for purity by remembering the consequences of failure. Not only do we fight for purity by intaking the truth and making ourselves receptive, not only do we fight for purity by recognizing the power of temptation, not only do we fight for purity by recognizing the hideousness of sin, but we fight for purity by remembering the consequences of failure. We need to look at that. We need to to consider the consequences. And the danger of sexual sin is such that it has this this power to dull the mind to its consequences. To dull the mind to its consequences. It has this ability to, it, for the one who makes this, to, to make himself a servant to this sin, it has this ability to shut off the ability to look into the future and see what will the, the result will be. It instead focuses all the, the focus on the present moment of gratification. And that becomes all that matters. Well, in response, Solomon teaches his son to remember the law of cause and effect. And this is what we need to bring into this discussion, the law of cause and effect. If you sow these seeds, if you do these deeds, if you think these thoughts, if you look at these things, if you engage with these women, there are consequences and you need to think of the consequences. You need to always have that on, on, on call. The moment temptation arises, think of the consequences. And Solomon helps us to rightly describe the consequences. Proverbs 2, 18 to 19. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. There's consequences. 
Chapter 5, verses 3 to 6, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and are smoother than, than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she doesn't even know about it. Wormwood is a poisonous plant. If you ingest it, you can die. The two-edged sword is that especially sharp dagger that cuts both ways. And Solomon also says, understand that not not only does she recognize where she's going, there is this sense of mutually assured destruction in the, the focus on the pleasure of the moment. Both of you go down to the pit. Chapter 5, verses 20 to 23. Why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Solomon says that there are two attributes of God that should be the death knell for sexual sin. The first one is this, God's omnipresence. God is omnipresent. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all the paths. Think of that in terms of consequence. He sees. He sees. You may be in the basement without any windows. He sees. And second, God is holy. God is holy. He, the man, the sinner, will be held with the cords of his sin and the agent that is assumed there is that God orchestrates this. God is omnipresent and he is holy and because of that there will be consequences. Chapter 6 verses 26 to 29. For an account of a harlot one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom And his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Over and over again, we see these warnings of the consequences that Solomon gives to his son, saying, focus on these consequences. Remember these consequences. Let the understanding of these consequences be the the instrument that delivers you from this temptation. In fact, just briefly, Solomon outlines five different areas of consequences. I have this in the notes. You'll get it in the PowerPoint as well. But these are the the categories. There will be spiritual discipline. The Lord will make his frown known to you. He will discipline you as a father does his child. There will be physical ailments. Solomon acknowledges the fact, he uses language to describe that the one who who hooks up with others can expect physical illnesses, venereal diseases and such. Number three, the regrets and fears. He speaks of this often to his son about the regrets that come and about the fears of the consequences that are on the way, even fears of the man whom he has sinned against by taking the wife. 
There is obviously financial ruin. Solomon says there will be financial ruin that come as a result of broken families. And of course, there is the disgraced reputation as a man is rightly, is rightly separated from a place of influence in the community. Again, Stuart Scott said this, one of the most destructive sins for the husband and the family is that of sexual lust. This sin opens the door to all kinds of degradation. This sin can and will destroy a man's life and his marriage relationship as no other. The consequences are vast. Some of you even here today can say, I came from a household where my dad destroyed our home because of sexual sin. And sadly, that story gets repeated over and over and over again. But the sad thing is, is that not enough men remember. And they repeat the same style of life. These are the eight, or the four, first four of these eight principles. We'll look at more next week. But before we close for tonight, and I pray, I want to remind you of hope. I would be remiss if I didn't hold out the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may be true slaves to sin and know nothing of God's salvation. Some of you may be saved but have made a series of bad choices that have left you in habitual patterns of sin and are defeated by that. For those who will turn to the Lord, there is grace. Let me read the hymn that we sang earlier this evening. And if you have never sung these words in true sincerity, these words can be yours. If you will come to your Redeemer as the only one who can save you from enslavement and all its consequences, if you will come to Him and profess Him as Lord and Savior, there is deliverance for you. It always works when there's true faith. That is the hope of the gospel. And even for those of you who are saved but have made these stupid decisions, God is the one who is disciplining you now as a father does his own son, as one who loves his son and longs to bring him back into obedience. Here are the words I will glory in my Redeemer whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior, before the holy judge, the Lamb, who is my righteousness. You might live the most pure life, but if you don't have this Redeemer, your righteousness is as filthy rags. You might be the worst of sinners here tonight, guilty of some of the most atrocious sexual sins have ever been committed. And the offer of the gospel is extended to you.
that his righteousness can be yours. And what he did on the cross, pay for all the debts of your sin. Heavenly Father, this teaching reminds us of how far we fall short of your glory. It opens to our awareness so many of these raw areas where we have failed, are failing, or we know that we're on the verge of failing. We pray that you would take the truths in this book, press them deeply within us. I pray for those who do not know you savingly and yet know very well that they are in the snares of of this sin and the pit of hell awaits them. I pray that you would not let them sleep. By your spirit, convict them. But as you do, also reveal to them the freedom that comes from the gospel. Send them running to your son, Jesus Christ, for deliverance. And for those who are brothers here who are struggling in this area, may you too convict them and discipline them so that this sin may not have any greater place in their lives. Discipline them so that they would come back again to make it their ambition to be pleasing to you in all things. We ask this for your glory's sake and for our own good. Amen.